Just about everybody in professional services worldwide knows who Accenture is. It's a global consulting, IT services, and outsourcing firm that generates $60 billion a year in revenue. It's a publicly held company with a market valuation of more than $200 billion. It was named among Fortune Magazine's most admired companies this year. Accenture has also created a thought leadership machine to power its growth. Francis Hinnerman runs this machine. He is Global Managing Director of Accenture Research, and he's been at the firm for nearly 25 years. He launched the company's thought leadership research team in France and took its research model across Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Asia Pacific. In my interview with Francis, he explains the impact of thought leadership research at Accenture, who the thought leadership function reports to in the company, and why that's been a critical success factor. Francis also talks about how he and his colleagues have been using generative AI in thought leadership research at Accenture and how natural language processing has helped the firm analyze 2 billion paragraphs. Hello, Francis. Great to have you on the show. I know I interviewed you three, I think it was three years ago in early 2020. That's when it appeared, but we didn't have this video podcast series. And so so now people can hear and see you talk and not just read a transcript of our conversation. So so I have advanced, I guess, in in uh, in my tools and techniques. It's great, really great to have you, Francis. So this November, November of 23, you will have been at Accenture for exactly 25 years? All right. Yes, 25 years. Okay. And if we turn back the clock, you joined the firm. When you joined the firm, it was a little under $10 billion in revenue. It had fewer than 100,000 employees, still a big firm. Today, revenue is $61 billion. That's six times that the year you joined. And headcount is more than 700,000. So seven time, more than seven times when you got there. And so when you look back, how do you see, what are the broad brushstrokes of how thought leadership research has changed at Accenture over those years? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, Bob. It's good to be with you today. Uh, the company has changed a lot. Actually, when I changed, when I joined the company, it was uh, not even named Accenture. It was named Anderson Consulting at the time, and it was not a listed company. It was a partnership, and that mattered because I joined the company in in France, and at the time, each country, because it was a partnership, had its own direction to a large extent. Uh, then we become a listed company with a new name. Uh, and uh, we developed some uh, global functions. And it happened to be the case for the thought leadership and the research function. What used to be a kind of archipelago of various small teams scattered around the world became a global team with a global role and some global direction. So that changed a lot in the way we work and in the impact we may have internally and externally uh, as well uh, over the years. And I would say that in terms of the... Uh, changes of the content of what we, we produce and what we disseminate, uh, the biggest change by far is about the data. And then, of course, recently AI and even more recently uh, generative AI. What used to be an activity based on the collection of a few data has become really a data-led organization producing data now, data and AI-led uh, a publication of, of various uh, uh, formats. So for, for me, that, that's really the, the biggest change that we have lived through in the past uh, 20 years. Yeah, and what has been, and the number of people in, in Accenture Research 
when it became a public company, went from Anderson Consulting to Accenture, how many people were in these various country units, you know, altogether, how many people were doing? Yeah, altogether, it was something like 30 people, 30, 35 people. Now we are more in uh, between 300 and 350. So uh, the company has grown 10 times uh, in these 20 years, and the team has grown 10 times as well, uh, really following the growth of the company because the activities, of course, have, have become a lot more complex. We are covering at Accenture 19 industries. We've got activities, uh, significant activities in more than 20 countries. And we cover as well all the uh, main functions of all the companies. And of course, it means that when you produce research, when you produce thought leadership, it's not about producing some type of global thought leadership that is a minimum common denominator. It's about producing something which is business relevant for each industry, for each function, and within each geography where we operate. And by the way, in most cases, in local language, we have local case studies. And of course, that means that the, the work itself has become a lot more complex. And we live through this paradox that I'm sure you live through every day, is that on one end, the work is getting even more complex every day. And on the other end, we have to communicate to our clients, to our ecosystem partners, to our communities in a way which is as simple as possible and simpler every day. It's not only the famous tweet, it's about the infographics, it's about the video of 15 seconds that you're going to look at on Instagram, or on TikTok. It's about all these ways of communicating in a way which is snappy, that is memorable, that is based, in fact, on very complex set of analysis that people are not aware of and should not be aware of unless they want to dive into, of course, all the data that we share as much as possible uh, with all the people who are interested. But we see and we know that most of our audience, they just want to have a simple conclusion with a few relevant data. And, and that's a paradox of our activity today. And is one of the complexities of that, of you know, having to to create this simplicity around all the, the, the complex analysis, complex data, is one of the impacts of that today versus 25 years ago is you're competing against many other points of view on any topic than you were or than any of us were 25 years ago. You know, you're on any study, you're not competing anymore against five others. You're competing against five times whatever the multiple is. That, that's true to some extent, Bob. We want to build an industry of one. So uh, that, that's our aim. So we want to be very different from all over uh, the players in the market, recognizing that, of course, in some areas, uh, there is uh, an intense competition. And of course, part of our work is to support the leadership of a company to build some things which are going to be really differentiated from all of our competitors. And that's part of, of the work that, that we have to do. But overall, you're absolutely right. I think the, what we've been living through is the democratization of access to ideas, is the democratization of access to technology. And that's what the cloud is about, right? And that's what ChatGPT is about these days. The, the floor, it's a great equalizer, right? The floor is getting higher uh, because of all these tools. We are giving access to lots of people to more ideas, more data. Uh, and that, of course, is raising the bar of the competition. And tell us, tell me more about the data. How has the data, the data that you have collected changed over the, uh, the last 25 years? You know, you, you said we're collecting a lot more data. But what kinds of data are you collecting that maybe you didn't collect 25 years ago? And 
the impact of all that. Yeah, no, no, it's a, uh, it's a very, uh, it's a very good point, uh, Bob. And and uh, roughly speaking, uh, you know, when with my former colleague Paul Nunes, who are doing the analysis of what we call twenty years ago high performance business, high performance business analysis that we developed at the time was based predominantly on financial data. Uh, if I fast forward to what we do today, we we're developing analysis around what our CEO, Julie Sweet, called 360-degree value. And 360-degree value means that, yes, of course, we collect, we analyze financial data, but we as well collect, analyze lots of non-financial data. Things about, think about environment, think about social data, think about governance, of course, and think about the feedback from employees that we are not taking into account so much 20 years ago. Things about the feedback for uh, from suppliers, of course, that we're not taking into account so much 20 years ago. So all these type of data are, you know, much bigger as such in terms of data sets and much richer and complex than what we used to collect and analyze 20 years ago. And that's a function of all this data is now available where it wasn't 25 years ago. A simple example being... Um, the transcripts of of quarterly investor calls, right, with public companies, um, they were hard to get 25 years ago, right? They were not recorded or transcribed. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it's it's an example which is dear to me because uh, I started my professional life by uh, uh, analyzing a transcript of earnings calls, which were in essence on paper, right? And uh, now we've got a team of data scientists. Which is analyzing, um, you know, in a few minutes, hundreds of thousands of earnings calls uh, every week, and uh, of course that has changed not only in terms of the the volume of activity and the productivity jumps have been phenomenal, but it has changed as well the type of insight that we can develop because with uh, automated uh, analysis and data science that we use today, we can uncover some insight that we could not uncover uh, 20 years ago when we were doing that. Uh, line by line, you know, with a pen, basically. Uh, and that to me is uh, extraordinarily interesting because we bring no, lots of new insight that we didn't get before and that we bring to the leadership of our company, that we bring to, to our clients and ultimately to, to our communities as well. So Francis, so if you possess that data and you have the tools and the people to analyze it quickly, does that mean you can get an advantage over discovering best practices? That may be difficult to discover if one is not pouring through at you know quarterly analyst calls, not looking at transcripts of podcast interviews that a CEO has done with whomever. Do you think that gives you an edge in finding best practices? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. It's a combination of various sources. The one you mentioned is definitely one of them. Uh, there are other sources of information from our own company as you were kind enough to mention that the company has grown uh, 10 times in, in 20 years. Uh, we've got as well a unique set of case studies, which is coming from our own experience with our own clients. And uh, we work with a, the, 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 the largest uh, 2000 organization around the world. We collect uh, information inside from these client experiences every day. Of course, we you know sanitize, anonymize, and uh, uh, respect all the aspects that we have to respect in terms of collection, sanitization of, of data, at the end of the day, that provides some unique insights. Plus what we add, which by the way, is the first question. Julie says that always the first question she had when the, she presents the thought leadership to a client is, what about you? Because 
when you are a company of $60 billion with 700,000 people and you preach something, uh, the odds are, are you doing it? Do you do it yourself? So that's why we always, when we develop some new tools, some new techniques, we always test it on ourselves first. And typically on ChatGPT, we are currently uh, piloting different usage of ChatGPT in my own team, in the research and thought leadership area, before referring that to client, we test it on our own knowledge uh, to make sure that when we use it, then it's going to be relevant to, to them. So you don't want to be the cobbler's children, right? Which is, they, they don't have shoes, you know? You want to be able to say, we've done this too. We're researching this topic and we think we're pretty far kind of ahead on this as well. No, I, I, absolutely, and uh, I, uh, of course, I, I like the the image. And uh, um, for us, and for me, it's uh, it's always a lesson to stay humble uh, and to make sure that you know whatever we develop and whatever recommendation we we give, and we hear a lot from you know from our clients. Uh, your insights are interesting. Most of the time, they're fifteen minutes ahead of you know competitors, so that's interesting. Now help us to bring a pathway between the insight and the actions and, and, and get into recommendations which are really actionable for us, meaning the, 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 the clients. Uh, and the fact that we test some of the solutions on ourselves help for that, because it means that you know if we implemented this new system, we tested this new way of working on ourselves, on the scale of our company, of course, taking into account differences of size, of countries, of industries, but more or less, that means that any good case studies that we've refined, polished within our four walls shall help our, our clients. And that's usually where, where we start. So I think a great example of that, of what you're talking about, is your new generative AI research that hit the market. Was it April or, Mar or March? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Surveys were done in 22. ChatGPT was not unleashed into the world until November of last year. And so how did you guys have the foresight to say, we need to do a research, thought leadership research on the impact of generative AI, you know, even before ChatGPT became famous? How did you know? Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a, very, that's a very good point. I think it's uh, it brings a, a point that you and, and people who are experts in this domain know is in the sense that the wonderful thing of ChatGPT is that it has triggered a much larger discussion than a discussion on generative AI. It has triggered a discussion about the potential benefit, the risk as well, uh, of implementing AI at scale in organization. And we saw that before, We've been studying AI for years in this company. We've published thought leadership on AI for, for years. And uh, we've been then updating our analysis, working with some of our clients, some of our partners on these uh, uh, dimension of business processes uh, for, for years. So in that sense, we had some type of you know, pre-prepared uh, ways of looking at it and, and establishing diagnoses that help to look at that uh, generative AI being one step to a larger discussion and to a larger use of, of AI across organization. Uh, and one of the points that is important, as you were mentioning surveys, is that, of course, it's part of the tools that, that we use. 
to understand lots of the, the reason why people adopt or do not adopt new practices. There is an element in surveys which is extremely interesting, which is about the why. The why you generally don't have it when you just got data and you can look at correlation, but you don't have a causation necessarily. With surveys, you can get more into this causation uh, uh, issue. However, uh, what you've got in, in lots of the data that we can manipulate these days is that you can develop test models. And these models are extremely helpful. When you, you, you think about generative AI, for instance, you can look very precisely within each job in multiple industries at different tasks and look at every single task which can be impacted or not impacted by generative AI. And from that, you can develop diagnosis about the number of hours that are going to be impacted for each job in each industry. And you look at a way of uh, establishing a potential future, which is a lot more nuanced and in my view, more useful to, to clients rather than to say, you know what, it's going to suppress X thousand jobs, which in our view is not really the point of a discussion. The point of a discussion is not about that. It's a lot more about each job or nearly each job is going to be impacted in what sense and what can be done there. And, and that through the modeling that you can develop with lots of these data, which are available these days, that's what you can, you can develop. And it's a much richer discussion with uh, clients that you can then uh, have. Yeah, I really liked the uh, the way you did that research. It wasn't a survey per se where you were surveying companies. It was using Bureau of um, Labor Statistic data, yeah. analyzing the tasks the tasks of a job, right? If uh, yeah. and by industry and so on, and jobs and types of jobs. Yeah, the richness the richness of the data as, as a European living in the US, I can say that the the richness of uh, the the data that you have access to in the US is absolutely phenomenal. And that is enabling us and of course, lots of other companies to do this type of granular analysis that then is going to be useful to our clients, CHROs, CFOs, CMOs, they're not going to have necessarily the same issues, but you can message the data in order to make these data analysis meaningful to each type of audience. And I imagine that that has generated a lot of, that study has generated a lot of interest uh, by clients and other companies who may not be clients right now. Yeah, uh, no, abs absolutely. And uh, we, we've seen that uh, uh, since, you know, the, the um, chat GPT uh, coming to the world uh, late, late November, absolutely. And as we run as well, some surveys on a regular basis of C-level executives, what we can see is that you know the world is becoming even more complex, even more uncertain. And uh, the the paradox is that at some point in time, I was thinking that maybe because it's becoming so much uncertain uh, and and volatile and and complex, uh, CEOs and C-level executives may be uh, less interested in thought leadership. It's exactly the opposite effect. Exactly the opposite effect that we can see. We can see much more demand. Or much more granular analysis coming from our clients that we could see before ChatGPT and even be, before COVID. And that doesn't surprise me because you know generative AI, uh, including ChatGPT, um, increases the complexity of just about any business process, any activity, any task that can be improved or automated altogether by it. Right? It just increases the 
the interest and the complexity of well, then for the executive, yeah. what do we do? You know, we know we have to do something, but we don't know what to do. Yeah, no, no, and and the fascinating aspect is that you know you've got these exponential growth of technologies, and we can see that with generative AI, and at the same time we can see that the business processes are not growing exponentially, right? They're more kind of linear in in the best cases, and in between. The, the, the exponential growth of the technology and the linear growth of the business processes, you've got a value gap. And what companies understand is that, of course, the quicker they close this value gap, the more they're going to, to create value, right? And it's where the transformation is not easy uh, and where thought leadership can help to identify the choke point and, and get to formulation of recommendation that can be helpful for, for companies and organizations around the world. Yeah, and especially in a, you know, with the, the threats of recession, the you know, the warnings of recession, we've heard that for, what, a year, at least a year and a half. Uh, it, it, it hasn't happened yet. But in those economic times, senior executives are looking a lot more closely at things to make the company more more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, that's one of the questions. It's, it's a very interesting question, Bob, and of course, and, and uh, that's one of the questions that we ask to C-level executives on a regular basis. We've got a series of uh, a Pulse survey that we run on a very regular basis uh, with, with our clients around the world. And what we have seen, uh, and it's been the case since, you know, as you were mentioning, there's been fear of going into recession in Europe and in North America, especially, although it's not here yet, is that we've been asking executives, you know, what if the economies, the markets in which you're operating are going into a recession, what are you going to do? And, and again and again, the answer that we've got as a large majority is that we're not going to slow down our digital transformation. On the contrary, it's an argument to actually accelerate it. And that's what we've seen survey after survey after survey for, for the past year. Okay, let's, um, another big change you mentioned at your speech at our conference last November was that over time, Accenture Research has focused on quality thought leadership as opposed to, you know, lots of quantity, lots of doing lots of studies. Tell us, tell us more about that and, and what triggered that and what that involves. It's an interesting journey, I would say, for our own company. As on one end, you've got a company which has been growing uh, a lot, predominantly organic growth, but as well some inorganic growth. So we've got more and more people joining Accenture who are thought leaders and who are keen to publish books, articles, thought leadership. Uh, and on the other end, the decision that uh, we took with uh, the person to whom I report, the Chief Strategy Officer of Accenture, Bashkar Ghosh, the Chief Marketing Officer, uh, Jill Kramer, with whom I work closely uh, as well, and the decision that we took with business leaders and ultimately Julie that our positioning is not to publish more of the same every day and to get into uh, a volume contest, uh, our position is really to get into the value game, uh, be extremely careful about the number of our publication, be really on the sweet spot about where we've got something to say to our communities, our clients, our ecosystem, which is differentiating and differentiated and, and will add value to, to them. And that's that's the way we've been uh, driving for leadership over the past few years, which means that we have to implement a, a quite rigorous and disciplined process uh, to, to get there. And we are fortunate at Accenture that we have plenty of business leaders with smart ideas. And then it's a matter of getting them into the right 
uh, process so they've got the incentive to join us, to work with us, uh, and to make sure that therefore what we publish is, is making a, a difference in, in the market. So the striking, you know, it's always to strike a balance. Uh, we want to unleash the creativity of all our business leaders. And at the same time, we want to be very intentional in the way that we communicate to the 19 industries, the 20 countries, and the seven functions I was, I was mentioning earlier. So in that sense, it requires some degree of, of coordination to make sure that we converge uh, in a way which is ultimately beneficial to, to our clients. Uh, has it been easy to, to make that shift from quantity to quality, I guess is one way to put it, to many studies, to, to fewer studies, but deeper, more substantive, bigger ideas, that kind of thing? Is that, has that been a hard shift? Oh, of course, it has been easy. <laughs> of course, it has been easy, Bob, uh, because we're working with with smart people. And uh, the, the the point is to uh, find uh, the right way to motivate all the people to to join that that journey. And uh, what we've been doing, and I've been fortunate for that to get the support of the top leadership of a company, is uh, really working with external partners to show internally what goods look like from an external point of view, from a client point of view, what goods look like. And then working on ourselves, making sure that we've got these reviews to make sure that what we publish is at this bar that we set in terms of quality, which in essence means that it's more value gain than, than a volume gain. And then when you get into a virtual circle, then people want to join. Uh, of course, because uh, they they can see the the impact of it, and we, we you know develop a certain number of mechanism uh, as as a forcing function uh, for that. And one of them is that we've got forum internally that we call the thought leadership forum, where once a month uh, you've got the two best projects of a month which get featured, and the business leaders would develop them, come and speak as they would speak to clients about what's great in, in their project. And that's, you know, that and other ways of mobilizing people and showing them that, you know, this is the route to go uh, to actually convince our clients that we've got something to tell them and it's worth listening to us. And we're not going to overwhelm them with lots of publications which are not differentiated. We are careful about that and we are intentional in what we share with them. Yeah, yeah. You know, it seems to me one of the secrets to success of Accenture Research is where it's positioned in the company. You know, you, you report up to to the chief strategy officer um, who reports to, to Julie uh, Sweet, the CEO, and then you've got a great partner in, in Jill Kramer, chief marketing officer. In many other organizations I know, I won't mention any names, you will find thought leadership reports to a CMO who really doesn't believe in thought leadership <laughs> or where thought leadership research, if there, if it exists and, and some fairly large firms is kind of a low level function that is largely starved of resources and starved of respect at the top. You guys are not that way at all. And that has to, that has to make it, Oh, one of the reasons that Accenture Research has, and having good people, uh, of course, has done so well. 
Do you agree with that premise, which is where you report, where thought leadership research reports can have a big impact on how it does? Yeah, I totally uh, uh, agree uh, with that, that hypothesis. I think the, 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 the fact that we report to a CSO means that we are aligned with the business priorities. And, and therefore, we are part of you know, some uh, business leadership meetings. So we know what is coming from clients, what clients crave. Uh, we are aware of the main priorities of a, the company itself as well. And we can design our thought leadership research program accordingly. And, and that's, that's one important point. This is something I talked about in my book, Competing on Thought Leadership. Chapter 11 was entitled, Accelerating the Momentum of Thought Leadership. I laid out three boosters and three busters of such momentum. One of the momentum busters is when thought leadership research and development reports to marketing. Who the thought leadership research function reports to can make or break thought leadership content in a company. In companies that generate groundbreaking ideas, I've typically seen thought leadership research report either directly to the CEO or to someone who reports to the CEO, but not through marketing. Thought leadership's role is to create great content that serves two purposes. The first purpose is for content that helps a firm create demand for its expertise. That's powerful research reports, op-ed articles, conference presentations, books, white papers, and so on. But a thought leadership research function also serves a second purpose as well. That's helping a firm create a differentiated set of services that it delivers to the marketplace. This is what I call the supply side of thought leadership. If thought leadership research reports to the chief marketing officer, the people in that firm who deliver its services, the consultants in a consulting firm, the lawyers in a law firm, and so on, they will not view that research as a source of service innovation. They're more likely to look at it as marketing content to publish. The second important point is that, as you were mentioning, you know, CMO, CMOs, uh, we're lucky enough to have actually a CMO uh, who uh, loves thought leadership and understand the value of thought leadership in the marketing journey, and especially at the beginning of the marketing journey, when it's about connecting with C-level executives, opening a meaningful business discussion. So it's a really a collective game, and uh, that's something that, uh, again, we are very uh, intentional about the way that we develop this collaboration across the different entities. We've, of course, the business leaders from, from consulting, from technology, from song, which is our digital marketing activity and from uh, technology and operations. Um, and the, so that's the second point. It's really a collective game is, is, important, uh, is important there. And the last point is that uh, um, we have, uh, you know, there is always a creative tension between centralization and decentralization. Uh, decentralization is obviously very good to unleash creativity. Uh, we have put some locks which are more centralized in the overall process in order to ensure that there is a certain level of coherence in our messages. Uh, and of course, it takes some, some time to uh, convince uh, colleagues why this centralization at some points in the value chain is needed. But when you can demonstrate the value, when you've got the feedbacks from clients, from third parties, then you know, you can convince them and it helps to get that type of uh, a virtual circle. Yeah. Okay. Let's 
let's we've touched on generative AI, ChatGPT, um, you know, included in generative AI. Tell tell me to the extent that you can how you guys are using generative AI in thought leadership research, whether to collect data, analyze data, write. What do you well, find um, useful or, or not? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I love the blog you published on that some uh, month ago, because uh, I think you, you nailed it. And if we look at the, the six steps of the thought uh, leadership process that you develop in, in your blog, uh, I agree with everything you, you wrote then, and especially about the way that ChatGPT or other models can be used uh, at the start of a process when it's really in, in terms of research design, looking at the white space, looking at the formulation of a problem, that can help a lot. And, and similarly, towards uh, the sixth step of your uh, six-step process, when it gets into the writing, uh, getting a first draft for some of the publication can be extremely helpful to go through this, uh, through this model. So I would say that you've got that at both ends. Uh, then uh, the big question is in the middle. Uh, and that's the only nuance I was adding to, to your analysis, the middle being the, the data analysis, where uh, we believe we can actually do a lot uh, with this model in terms of, of data analysis. Of course, that raises the question about what do you put in the public domain, why you don't put in the public domain, the intellectual property, and so on and so forth. But broadly speaking, uh, these models can be used a lot uh, for data analysis. And that's where I think it's going to, to make a difference as well. The, the, the first part, the research design, as I was mentioning earlier, I think it's uh, ChatGPT and other models are, are a great equalizer. It's going to help all the people in the world who want to develop port leadership to get to the baseline. So the floor is going to, 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 to rise and, and it's going to be higher um, and everybody will be able to get to that, to that floor. The same thing on, on the writing. Now, it's not because you've got a model to do a good draft that necessarily you've got the model to become, you know, the best writer uh, of the year, right? So uh, I think it's it's that what you have, we have to, uh, to to keep in mind as well. But again, as a way to raise the bar and you know get to new level for the floor, uh, I think it's going to be extremely helpful, and we can see that internally. Now the big question for us, I was mentioning this data analysis in the middle, which in my view is the next step. Uh, plus the fact that when we speak about generative AI and, and chat GPT, uh, we speak about the great equalizer in terms of the floor. But the question is, that's productivity. The question is the sailing, creativity. And that's where, in my view, you're going to see the difference. And that's where we want to compete, is that we want to raise the sailing using this type of model. So that's, that's what we work on. And uh, we, we hope to show you some of the results very soon, uh, Bob, on that. That's fascinating. So let, so let me ask this question, Francis. Do you think in within three years, people in thought leadership research will be using ChatGPT or another version of generative AI to create thought leadership frameworks? You know, the you know the equivalent of the Michael Porter Five Forces or Value Chain or the Michael Hammer Jim Champy Business System Diamond for reengineering. Can we? Do you think we'll be able to use this to create? Frameworks, which typically has been the province of smart consultants and smart professors. No, it's it's a it's a very good uh, question. I don't think we can answer that right now, uh, and it's it's getting as well in 
from the area of thought leadership to more the area of consulting itself, where my, my colleagues in consulting, should you be in, in, interested to invite them, could answer better, more precisely than, than I can. What I can tell you, though, is that in the thought leadership research space, uh, I strongly believe that every single thought leadership team will have a data science core. And the teams which will not have the data science core in three years will be outcompeted by those who will have it. That, that, that I'm convinced of. That's why we are, you know, we started building our data science core some years back. Uh, we are accelerating now, of course, and growing it because we believe that's, that's, uh, that's a competitive uh, advantage uh, eventually. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, let's, um, you talked about this three years ago in our conversation about the very strong working relationship with uh, marketing at the time. And I think uh, Jill had just become or was about to become chief marketing officer. Uh, tell us about how important that is for thought leadership research to have a very strong working relationship with marketing and how one establish, establishes such a relationship. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely crucial. Uh, we really uh, believe in the, the two teams working together uh, at Accenture. And uh, Jill was in charge of brand when you interviewed her a few years ago, and then she became the... The, the CEO a short time afterwards, in, indeed. Uh, and we always believe in that type of uh, deep collaboration. Uh, and uh, typically, it has uh, uh, an impact on both the content and the channels. And of course, the channels are critical. The way that you can reach your audience and the, the way you can convince your audience. And that's with uh, Jill that we've developed uh, an app that is now available on iOS and on Google Android. Uh, where we publish lots uh, of our thought leadership. And of course, when you publish on an app, yes, it's good to have a PDF style report. People who are interested to get there, they get there. But you can do a lot more. Uh, you can do videos. And Jill herself has been doing foresight videos, you know, 15 minutes on a, on a topic. Uh, we can get a lot more uh, data visualization, of course. We can get a lot more open data to give access to the data we have to whoever is interested to, to look at. Uh, at the app, we can get podcasts and we've been developing a series of podcasts as well and so on and so forth. And the choice of these different channels, you know, whether it's a, a video, a blog, a podcast and or a long form publication and, and or open data, that's really something that we discuss together in between the two teams, marketing and, and research and eventually getting the, the, the right combination for the audience that we think we shall target for a specific uh, publication. There is no one size fit all. We do not believe in that. And so it's, it's very important to get the right mix uh, every time. And the good thing with, uh, with an app as we have it now is that, you know, you can get the feedback uh, nearly instantaneously. In the sense that people open it or do not open it. They stay on the video. They do not stay on the video. I mean, it, and, and that is extremely helpful uh, to, to us. The app is fantastic. So I applaud everyone who was involved with that app. And it must have been in the works for many months, right? Some months, yes. <laughs> again, again, because, uh, you know, it's, it's the same point I was mentioning earlier, is that given the size of a company, we had the possibility and we had the mandate and the obligation to test it on ourselves first. And that's what we've been doing behind closed door for, certain number of months so that, you know, when we open it to everybody, 
we knew it was already uh, good enough and we could continue to improve it as as uh, as we are going but it was already at a certain level of of quality before we released it and so what kind of things are you learning from the data that the app is giving you you know on things that are viewed heavily or not so heavily and etc what what kind of data do you now have and and how are you using that yeah no it's uh, it's it's in the uh, to a large extent, it's in the making. We are in the early stages of, uh, of um, you know, the deployment of, of the app. It's available everywhere in, in the world, but we learn more every day. We can see in the number of uh, people who get connected to it, it's rising, still rising. So uh, uh, in that sense, uh, we are very optimistic about, uh, about the future. And uh, what we can see is that there is an interest for a variety of, of format. And, and for us, that something that we are already doing to some extent uh, on the website, but we can see that uh, even more clearly uh, on the app. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the short format, whether it's a video, a podcast, a data visualization, this type of blog, uh, this type of short format is uh, attractive to, to the audience, which is not to some extent a surprise because that's how we behave in our everyday life, right? But we can see that now uh, in, in the business world in which we operate and in the business research in, in which we operate. Great stuff. Great app. Okay. Um, you'd also said uh, last November that you were, you were Accenture Research works with a, a bunch of professors on research and that these things can take longer. The research can take longer. Um, there was a, you mentioned <laughs> three years on a topic with HBS, the Harvard Business School. And, um, what has proved to be, how important is it to do research with leading academics and and what has proved to be crucial in working with these? Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely uh, fundamental. Uh, you were mentioning a partnership with Harvard Business School, uh, which has been uh, very fruitful for, for my own company and, and, uh, and my own team. Uh, we've got a partnership as well with uh, MIT, uh, to mention one in the same uh, type of uh, geographic We've got as well a, a partnership in uh, Europe. Uh, I was in Paris recently. We've got a new partnership with a famous school in France called Sciences Po, and we had one with the first engineering school called Polytechnique. So we've got partnerships of that kind uh, around the world, and we are we are developing them because uh, these partnerships with academia bring uh, a level of depth uh, in the research, in the level of rigor, uh, which is absolutely fundamental to the work we do. It's fundamental to really get to the core of a given topic that we study with them. Uh, it's fundamental as well because we can study with them because it takes more time, as you were mentioning. We can study with them topics which are not necessarily the hot topics of a day today, but may become the hot topics of a day in three years. And as a research team, we want to anticipate that. So we can have the right topic at the right time with the right type of outcome when it will it will come. Uh, and so for, for that reason, uh, these, these partnerships are absolutely uh, fundamental. And I will add one thing, which is more on the, um, the human side of it. It's, uh, you know, we, we preach all the time diversity. Uh, and, and for me, it's fundamental that we implement that in our daily life and to work with uh, professors, to work for people with academia is as well to bring a certain type of diversity in our work, 
which is extremely helpful because, you know, you were kind to mention that I've been in this company for 20 years. So I've been in consulting for 20 years. It's extremely helpful to get the perspective of people who are somewhere else in, in our communities and, and in our ecosystem. And that's what these people bring as well. And, and, and then, um, you know, it's, it's as well the, the richness of the human experience. I think at the end of the day, we are people-based organization, and it's important that we develop the right connections with, with people uh, around the world, including for, for people in, in my own team as well, because they can see how people who've been professors, who've been researchers for 10, 20, 30 years, how they work. And it's inspiring for, for the next generation, even if the next generation may stay in consulting, but they're inspired by this type of uh, rigor, this type of discipline, this type of, of depth. And, and that's something that ultimately the people who learn that into my own team and company will bring to, to our clients. And that's, that's why it's fundamental and enjoyable, you know? Yeah. It's great to see that. I saw that work at the firm I worked at 30 years ago with great success. Uh, the CSC index had relationships with at least a dozen leading business professors and, and technology professors, computer scientists. and um, not all of the relationships turned into big new ideas and business and new consulting services, but a number of them did. And um, it also helped prevent the, that consulting firm at the time becoming very insular in its thinking, thinking it knew everything about anything. <laughs> well, you're working with a leading professor at MIT or Harvard or Stanford, or, you know, you pretty, you get humble very quickly. You learn how much they know about a topic you've just begun to research. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and we were speaking earlier about, you know, the, the way we look at uh, what Julie calls 360-degree value. So not only the financial performance, but the other type of performance on environmental and, and social. And uh, what they bring as well is this type of focus on the common good that uh, if we are not careful, we can, you know, forget in our daily life. And, and having this type of, strong connection help us as well to to bring the common good in the way that we think about the future. Yeah, by the way, it was also a, a, a good way 30 years ago for that consulting firm to introduce itself to students, professors, you know, professors would bring forward, introduce, introduce us to students and begin to have an impact at whatever the, the business school is that we were interviewing at. It built deeper relationships with you know, students who were going to MBAs and others who were going to graduate that we wouldn't yeah. have we not had a, a partnership with a, a research partnership with a professor. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Because one of the output can be, you know, to write a, a paper together, but one of the output can be as well to coach students and help them to grow their own skill. So it goes both ways. And that's, that's why it's, it's balanced and it's mutually beneficial. And Indeed, what you mentioned, uh, which uh, you, you were living through uh, uh, 30 years ago, is the way we experience it today uh, as well. Yeah. What questions should have I, should I have asked you that I didn't on how to run thought leadership research and, um, or anything else about thought leadership research? I mean, I, I'm interested in, in, always interested in how firms handle the supply side, what I call the supply side of thought leadership, where they take the big ideas, the Biggest ideas born in thought leadership research, and they earn them, they scale those up into consulting services that beyond 
the authors of the book or the <laughs> HBR article. What are your feelings about that and how to get, you know, that part of the equation right? No, I think that's that's uh, that's still uh, very important, Bob. And to uh, uh, the the things we thing which have, has changed somehow is the speed. Now you can uh, test and fail and test and succeed uh, a lot faster than uh, than you could twenty or thirty years ago when you had a good idea. You would you know test it for an article in a business journal, and uh, depending on the success of the article, you can develop more into a book and then share this book with clients and develop an offering alongside it. Now things go a lot faster, so to some extent they can overlap. But in in terms of uh, what you call the supply side. The fundamentals are are still the same, and one one thing to me that I communicate, you know, again and again to uh, to students, to colleagues, and to people that that we recruit is that it's not because you've got you think you've got access to everything and anything through the web, through generative AI, through various tools that you can find online, that you are going to uh, develop some original ideas that you can get supported with new facts and, and data. And that is still this process of this intellectual rigor of developing testing hypothesis that, in my view, is, is, a, is a work which is worth it. And it's not a commodity. And, and that, that requires some, of course, you use all the new tools that you can use to get faster, cheaper, and, and more productive overall. Um, at the end of the day, Still got to develop these these new ideas because it's, it's the way that you can convince clients, companies, organizations that the best way to to change is the way you're going to tell them that they could do it. To me, that's kind of the 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 uncharted territory for most consulting and IT services firms, or most professional services firms. Period. This decade is ramping up the supply side of thought leadership, supply mm -hmm. of, of high quality consistently reliable services that that emanate from the thought leadership research that's done in a company and scaled up so that you know hundreds of people can deliver these services at high quality not just <laughs> two authors of the book you know that's where a lot of investment i believe should go and needs to go so that to capitalize on thought leadership no but and that's a very good point and that's probably because the uh the return on investment is not easy to measure in the sense that it's not because you develop a great leadership that you're going to have additional millions of dollars of sales automatically in the next three months, right? It's, the process is a lot more complex than that. And that means that you have to put in place all the building blocks to, to lead to that. And that's a precision mechanism uh, where you've got to be careful to have all the building blocks to make it a, a success. And, and that that's somewhat complex, and that's maybe why some, you know, may be deterred by this this complexity. My point is that it's worth it ultimately. So I hope we'll convince more companies to to invest in in thought leadership and research because it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Francis. Uh, any questions I should have um, asked but didn't? What are your What are your parting thoughts on thought leadership, and you know, where it may perhaps where this profession is headed over the rest of this decade? What do you What do you foresee? Yeah. In my view, it's going to get to go bigger. Uh, I think it's in sync with some of the data that uh, published yourself uh, last November, uh, Bob, and that it's, it's growing and it's, it's going to, to get uh, bigger. So there are plenty of 
professional opportunities in, in that domain. Uh, of course, it requires you know, the rigor and the discipline that uh, we've been talking about today to, to be successful. But there are many challenges uh, in front of us. You know, we, uh, as you asked me a question we did not speak about, but we could speak about at, at some point, climate change. Uh, for me, that's the biggest topic. It's climate change. And uh, the way that we can address it with changes of business processes, with technologies, making sure that the benefits of technologies are higher than actually the challenges that technologies are uh, rising. That, that, that to me is, is, is a big topic for uh, the, ne the next decade. Ab absolutely. Not only we all know it's in front of us, but we all know that the gap between where we are and where we should be as, uh, as the world uh, is immense. And so we need a lot more people uh, there. And of course that even getting even more complex as we've got these geopolitical tensions, which means that in terms of port leadership research, we've got more and more as well to be extremely careful on the way we develop topics, which may be addressed in different ways in different parts of the world, which again, is not a reason why we should not do it, but it's a reason to be even more careful because in our world, the world is not flat. So uh, we've got to be careful about the way that we develop these ideas to be relevant in all the countries where, where we operate. So if you take into account this type of topics, uh, you can see that there, there, is a, there is a lot to do in front of us uh, to, to influence changes and, uh, in, in different organizations. Well, Francis, I'm going to let you go. This has been a, a really great conversation. And Keep up the wonderful things you and your team, your people are doing. Yeah, no, thank you, Bob. And uh, and uh, as you say, we don't know what it is. And some of the dimension that uh, will matter, of course, is what is going to be defined in terms of regulation, in terms of public policies as well. There are some decisions to, to take there. And hopefully, uh, well-informed thought leadership can help as well to uh, develop some impactful uh, public uh, policies in uh, in that space. So uh, we've, got, we've got a pretty full agenda in front of us. Accenture has been at the leading edge of consulting and IT services since it renamed itself in 2001 when it retired the Anderson Consulting brand. The company's ability to bring scale and services, to develop new and innovative services quickly, to train and develop thousands of people capably, and to have a recognition of what it takes to invest properly in thought leadership research, as well as, of course, invest properly in creating a well-recognized brand to invest in marketing, have long been exemplary. I am looking forward to Accenture showing the way for all of us over the rest of this decade in thought leadership research and in collecting enormous amounts of data and using AI to help analyze that data. We should all stay tuned into what Francis Hinterman and his talented group at Accenture Research are doing. Everything Thought Leadership is a video and podcast series from Boudet TLP. It's for thought leaders and thought leadership professionals, the people who help experts get recognized as thought leaders. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you left a like and if you shared the episode with your colleagues. You can find out more about Boudet Thought Leadership Partners at boudettlp.com.